the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. This morning, we have a very special guest speaking with us from Nairobi, Kenya, Philo Ikonya, also known as Gacheri, who is a human rights activist, an ardent poet, writer, and lecturer. Gacheri holds postgraduate degrees in the arts. She consults on gender, governance, and media. In 2002, and again in 2007, she ran for parliament in Kiamba, Kenya. Welcome to the show, Philo. Hi. Hello. How are you today? Hello. I'm fine. How are you? I'm very good. And I noticed there is a slight delay, so I just want to let our listeners know that there is a slight delay in the transmission. So I I understand. So right now it's in the evening in Kenya, yes? Yes, it's a beautiful evening. Oh, wonderful. Well, Philo, you and I met in 2006 when you were in the United States um, attending and participating in the Global Women's Leadership Network, yes? Right, Cheryl. Yeah, and that Global Women's Leadership Network is um, a part of the Santa Clara University Levy School of Business, and the purpose is to bring women around the world to their whole self and to inspire leadership. And you actually um, were able to attend this because of the work you do and because your community supported you in coming. Can you tell us, um, what you did to get your community to help bring you to the United States? Yes, well, I did a lot of uh, what we call here grassroots work, which means a lot of volunteer work, uh, fueling my little car and going around. Um, my area is actually many villages as a constituency, so 192 like kilometers squared, visiting different homes, different marketplaces and finding the women at work, um, being ready on standby for people who would be confused or interested in getting assistance on human rights issues. Sometimes it would be a, a, a land situation because here land is, is really valued and, and people don't have the information they need to network when, when they have small problems which or big problems which don't work the government way. So I just made myself available, all my phones and also physical presence, shopping in, in the market or buying things alongside the roads. You know, women mm-hmm. sell bananas um, in little markets near the roads in, in the mud, mud or not all season roads. So they get used to seeing one and uh, they say I'm very uh, approachable. They're at home with me. So... They tell me their problems. Sometimes it's about a child who is who is uh, wayward or 
divorce. It's, it's very varied. Or women living in very difficult situations, things to do with HIV and AIDS. So somebody spotted me and marked me as one of those persons who are giving a lot to the community hardly without expecting anything back. That's how it happened, mm-hmm. Cheryl. That's a wonderful gift that you give them, and they turned around and gave to you. And you were able to take the story of your community out into the world. Now, you you call yourself a human rights activist. I'm very curious, Philo, if you will please tell us, what got you interested in doing this kind of work? You, you, You started being interested in this when you were very young. Could you tell us about that? Right. Um, it's, it's all about justice. It's about having been brought up by one, a mother who was one of those rare teachers these days because very dedicated in the 60s in her schoolwork and a father who was a driver at the airport but very, very concerned and ambitious for his daughters. So I have two sisters who older than me who got uh, polio infections in uh, in the 60s. And I grew up knowing that there, there are people who need help all along because they got they got um, their limbs, they got their legs weak, one or two of them actually, each one leg weak, uh, the left leg. So my father was always very conscious of um, of people giving their best. My mother was, uh, I would say, a perfectionist. I still keep some of her school books. So it just it's just a part of me that you have to look out for somebody else and you also have to watch out for systems in a society because I think I really, I really got it also personally because growing up in a village in, in Kiambu meant going to school but coming home in the evening to work with my mother. So she would be going to the farm, uh, not even a big farm, it's a piece of land to try and, and look out for beans and maize and stuff like that and be getting home around this time. It's quite dark outside now, I'm just looking through my, my window. And she would have all these things on, on her back. And I, I, I helped from time to time and also fetching water from the river and it just got into my system that this was all wrong. Even being a village girl, not having read magazines and not hearing so many things on the radio, I used to think every time I had a burden on my back, well, this wasn't it. I, it was disturbing. So I think I saw that there were no working systems as such in the village and, and, that, and that we deserved a better life. We knew there were better lives going on around maybe Nairobi, other places. But I love the village. Up to now, my my friends actually tell me that I speak an awful lot about village every time I speak, and that isn't quite it. So I think, I mean, quite the normal thing with many other people. Some of them went away, left the country, went to the cities, and, and the village is a distant thing. So I grew up with that desire to serve. Besides, I grew up in a big family, so I think I think it all started there. And I was awfully conscious about people stepping on my toes or injustice. Like I remember weeping at school when I was a little older. I was uh, 16, 17, and a young girl was pregnant in school, and I didn't know all along until early in the morning. And 
she had a delivery all, all, almost all by herself in the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom and it really shocked me. And I think many of the other students were able to get over it because this was a boarding school then, but I just couldn't live with it. And what I couldn't live with was the thought of the man, not the girl. The girl I had a lot of sympathy with for because I could imagine just what it had meant come to school knowing that you were in, you know, expectant, trying to, to wear a baggy cardigan and coping more or less just, you know, slouching along. And no one noticed, actually, till, till that morning. And it still lives with me. Every time I see the bathroom, the exact place, and unfortunately, I did not follow the story of the girl because she left and then came back. That was very fortunate because I was A-levels to finish the school. So these things, I think, very much just part of a sensitive nature I might have and then the environment. And, you know, so I got into human rights. And the media here also called me a human rights activist, so it turns out that a human rights activist. It's about <laughs> civil rights now, national, not just the village, uh, or freedom, uh, of, you know, of expression, things like that. Am I making sense? Absolutely. It's, it's clear that uh, you are very dedicated to your country and to the people of your country. And... Kenya has had um, an interesting history politically, and recently there has been more violence in Kenya. Um, when you started, the first time that you ran for political office in 2002, there had been a change in the election system, and you actually had open elections for one of the first times, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you ran for parliament, and, um, yes. and you, you did not win, correct? Right. What made you decide to stand up and enter the election? What gave you the courage to do that? The courage to do that actually came more not from, um, well, let me put it this way, not having resources, but from what I call the defense of, of voice in Africa and in many other places. I, I just think that it's so important that people, ordinary people like myself, not from a rich background, are able to, to express themselves and, and um, talk about ideas that concern the nation as a whole. And some of my friends actually describe me as a Pan-Africanist because I will talk now, and I write a lot about uh, various uh, countries, but concentrating on Kenya, I think I just had to stand up and be counted because I come from a constituency that was invariably represented in parliament by rich, old men. And yes, you know, some of them were even people who know my father, the two of them who have been the main people there, they... they they knew my father, but the worst part of it was that one of those men had represented Kenya for, I mean, Kiamba constituency in the Nairobi parliament, because the parliament is only in Nairobi, for over 35 years. And mm. I could, you know, I couldn't get over it. This, this man has money, knew Kenyatta, knew President Moy, you know, knew the first president, the second president. Things had changed, and he just kept on in there. And you didn't hear any 
voice from parliament for us about the kind of problems I'm talking about. Water, electricity, things that affect women, really. Uh, girls, children not being able to continue with their schooling because of violence, because of uh, things like I said before, pregnancy, drop out, dropping out of school. It just got too much. And I well, thought, I kept on saying it in my office, this is very bad. I mean, this is, and I read in the papers and I wrote, and then I thought, no. I, I mean, I think I'm just tired of talking about it. I want to go for it and prove that a younger person, a woman, can speak to their people and let them have an alternative so that they stop blaming us because they would say, okay, you people say we should elect somebody else. Where, where is somebody else? So that's, where that's is somebody else? And, went. and yes. that takes a lot of courage. We're going to talk more about this with Philo Iconia when we come right back. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Marissa, are you ready yet? I know you can hear me. You are not missing school again. Marissa! You trying to be a nobody or something? Let's go! Alright then, hit it. I know you can hear this. Hey guys, move closer. That's it. Girl, I am not leaving. Hey, whatever it takes, don't let your friends drop out. A real friend can make all the difference. Cut that noise, yo! I'm coming! Took you long enough. Thanks for the help, guys. For more ways to help, go to OperationGraduation.com. A public service message from the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back. This morning we're speaking with Philo Ikonya from Kenya. 
Philo, you were telling us about um, your interest in the political system and the story of how you grew up and became concerned about the voice of the individual. Now, currently in Kenya, um, the politics are what we call pretty hot, yes? Right. Yeah. And what do you see as the main problem today? Okay, first, first let me say that although I wasn't elected, I'm very proud of my record as someone who stands and moves in the communities and asks for votes. And I'm proud of that record because many people are bribed into voting for people with extraordinary resources, which, by the way, they cannot fully, clearly account for. So I, I, I know that I have made a difference and I have not felt less of a leader because I didn't get winning votes. I felt great because... I think I identify with the people very well, so and they see me as a voice that can, you know, speak for their issues. And by the way, three weeks after the election, they already regret. They they send messages that I think we went wrong again. And this time, I'm acting a little tough. I'm not going back to say, yeah, you made a mistake, etc. I'm I'm just telling them, well, this is what you get. So. I think now you are referring to the tough situation that we are in in Kenya and how I see things. I hope I, I still have the question right. The thing is, it's been really very difficult. For one, we thought Kenya was reaching the level where we could say it was an exemplary country in terms of democratic gains, and we didn't really think. Many people had no idea that we could go back to the dark era. We call the dark era those those times when... You know, elections were like, um, it was already confirmed before you even went to vote who would win. And then it came as not totally as a surprise, but quite as, um, I, I wouldn't know how to put it. It was For me, it wasn't an absolute surprise because I could already see ethnic tensions. But it did, come, it did shock us that we actually went back that far. And the good thing is that through, through January, February, it was all tears. Kenya was burning, and voices were not coming out. I was, I was really, really uh, feeling like, you know, this cannot be that I can't pass through what we call Uhuru Park. Freedom Park was full of paramilitary police, and they wouldn't let you walk down even a couple of you. And this is a place that I hold, I hold sacred because we got our independence from from uh, from Britain there in, on those grounds. And it's a big, big park, almost about uh, six kilometers on one side of Nairobi and facing the parliament, and quite central. So that, that came as amazing. And this park, Cheryl, by the way, has a history of, in 1991, when the dictatorship of Moy was really at its highest levels, some women, some old women, were camping in the park, and they had a hunger strike, and they were really harassed. And the reason why they were camping there was because their sons were political prisoners. Sons, not daughters, actually. And they were political prisoners for a long time, and they wanted them set free. And the police kept on taking them back home, and they kept on coming back. They sprayed them with water jets. They stayed. They took refuge in a church that's nearby there. They were offered space. And then one day they did what we call an African curse, or they were mainly Kikuyu, but they stripped naked, old women stripped bare, 
naked, and that was meant to be a curse to the president. The press was there. Everybody had been waiting. It was building up, so you can imagine. So now I'm just reflecting on what happened earlier this year. To think of a corner like that, Freedom Corner, that's actually also associated. Those women were put together and given a lot of motivation by Honorable Wangari Maathai, who is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And to think that we couldn't even pass on that haloed ground because it wasn't funny that women stripped there and it wasn't interesting that they had to, to call a curse upon the dictatorship then. It was just so painful. So we came out and a couple of us dressed in sacks and it started working, spreading. People move, women moving around in sacks and this shocked some of the paramilitary people and they weren't fighting us and they stopped shooting. So the situation in Kenya then was, and it still is, very, very, uh, I would say, fragile, volatile, because we saw ourselves shaken to the foundations, really yeah. tried. People couldn't run to church anymore like they did in 1992 because churches had also taken positions. So we were driven, you know, to, to the very, to, to strip sort of our spirits, Stripping our spirits, because this curse, by the way, is reserved to the old women. It doesn't work with the younger women. But, you know, in a sense, we were stripped bare, all of us, and we were facing ourselves and asking just what is this. On the 27th of December, people queued, so to speak, peacefully. Long, long queues throughout the villages, throughout this country, and they voted. But then on the 30th, by the 30th, two days on, the results were not out especially we are talking about the presidential results. And there were these two strong candidates who are now the Prime Minister, Raila Odinga, and then President Kibaki. And because the results were not out, the country spiraled into such violence all over. Rural villages were on fire. And now the situation as it stands is that the two have tried to bring reconciliation after, after the mediation, which was spearheaded by uh, Kofi Annan, and they went around the country after some time calling for peace. But many people became internal refugees. And right last Monday and through today, they are trying to resettle them. But many have refused to go back home, especially in the Rift Valley. And they are afraid for their safety. Uh, the two principals, as we call them, the president and the prime minister, continue talking about a government of coalition, which is true, it exists. But the ground has not yet uh, completely come together. I, I shudder to think that because our geography is, is um, quite prone to volcanic action, that, that we might be not really taking charge in the sense that we are not addressing all the issues, meaning that peace and reconciliation must start from village to village, which takes me back to my village. My village wasn't very hard hit by violence, but yes, it was also torn apart because there were young people who, who were supposed to go and defend people in other areas. And so the growth of militias, especially a specific militia that's really feared here, has led to the death of many young people who, who may not even be members of the militia, which again brings me back to my call for human rights activism, which is beginning to get choked. Because how long can you speak about people who are being killed in the name of them being members of a militia when they really are not but, 
you cannot actually prove that they're not. And even if they were, the idea is to get them and try them, and you know, before other things are done. So I feel that many people feel that things things are still quite slippery and difficult to deal with. Mm. Today on one of the national uh, newspapers, we have two pages about a different area, quite far from my my area, which is Central Province, that's Mount Elgin, where we have uh, lots of deaths again of, of young people who are said to be in a militia that defends their land. And mm. the political situation in Kenya is actually that if we had started power sharing by by addressing what we are now calling Agenda 4, land issues. Land issues are very critical here. And yeah. anybody who is interested in helping Kenya needs to address the land issues because people are fighting all around because of land. Now, you speak about how the women have stood up. The women have said, this cannot happen anymore. I'm wondering, do very many men participate with that? Oh, dear. It's gone really shaky. Can you hear me? <clears throat> yes, I yes. heard you. But I speak about women, how they have stood up. I didn't well, and, hear and, the end. But and are there men who have joined in the fight with you, with the women? If you can do anything about it, it would be better. But I know you're asking how women have stood up. I think that Kenya is actually, I will always tell my friends that I believe Africa is a woman. The women have been in the background, hardly ever seen, even during the colonial struggle that we had here in Kenya. Women were not mentioned a lot, but they are the ones who walked through the bushes, through, you know, in different places, through the forest, carrying food for the fighters, uh, in the background, always sort of uh, deceiving the, the colonial master in the sense that they looked so innocent and they looked all or like they were just looking for firewood, or they weren't looking for firewood. They actually knew where the freedom fighters whom the colonialists were looking for so that they could kill them like uh, Dad and Kimathi were, and they would offer them food and uh, disappear. I have actually met women who walked like 50 kilometers in the area. They give you this kind of information right today because not all of them have died. So women have never let go of, of this country. Unfortunately, when it comes to decision-making or trying to go to parliament, like in my case and in the case of about 372 women who tried to go to a parliament that has 220 members, only 21 women were able to go into parliament. So when it comes to decision-making or to, you know, going into positions of influence, women invariably find that they cannot break through what they call the glass ceiling. We are talking about the same language now. So it's unfortunate that also when it comes to, you know, it's difficult to garner votes. You have cultures to fight, to struggle against, because even though people really appreciate the role of woman and her strength, something there is about when it comes to now, the decisive moment, this woman wants this office. Uh, that makes people go back mainly to the men. It's money, it's culture. The belief that the, the man is the one who can speak and never flounder, that the women have uh, problems of temperament and so on, things that you can't believe people still believe, but it appears that it carries on not just in, in, in Africa but in many other parts of the world. And 
We had exemplary women from all corners of this country. I remember the story of Mekate Lili Wamenta, over 100 and something miles, 220 miles from her village, defending her people, going back and calling them. No, we can't give our land just like that, our, our cultures away to, to, to the colonial people. Women have been there all along. We also had Mary Nyanjiro. This, this woman actually told men in 1922 to strip their, to get rid of their trousers and she could put on their trousers and stand up for one of the freedom heroes, um, Harituku, who was being harassed by the administration. What's interesting about women, I find, is that we don't only speak here the language of words. You hear what Mary Nyanjiro said in 1922? Give me those trousers and you see I can do a better job. You know, and the that takes a lot mind. of courage. That takes a lot yes. of courage, yes. A and lot of courage. See how the women sleep later. Yes. And Dilo, we're going to go to break and we're going to continue this conversation when we come right back. Internet's only all business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static, it evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. 
the economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity. But being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On the economy and the markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The Economy and the Markets, clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Philo Ikonya in Kenya today. Philo is a human rights activist. Philo, please tell us about your campaign, Wearing a Sackcloth. Yes, it was uh, 10 days after the results weren't announced, the election results, and there was a lot of tension I cannot describe the tension that filled Nairobi. It was unbelievable. Nairobi and the whole country and its environs, it was just so tense. It was quiet. People were not leaving their homes. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of tear gas in the town. Kisumu, people were dying. But we didn't even have live coverage on television. It had been shut, shut down by the minister then of internal security just announced to radio and TV nothing should be covered. So you can just imagine the feeling. You're bottled up, the country is on fire. I was really depressed because one thing is to be on a podium asking everybody, please vote me. And that's what we had done for the last, like, one month. And there was a lot of activity, hardly sleeping. You know how campaigns are. You're having campaigns right now over there. And it, just no hours, like, to even think about oneself. And then suddenly, just in an instant, everything is shut. You stay in your houses. And I was here in my flat because I had come back to Nairobi. I have a little flat in Nairobi. And I couldn't move, and I couldn't believe it. And there was no consolation in the sense that to get any information, you had to go on the British Broadcasting BBC, get all the foreign media you could get that fortunately wasn't shut. And they were giving, you know, the, the information that was coming across was really, really bad information. People murdered, people lying in the morgues, people, you know, just having their houses set on fire. Even up to now, those images still haunt me, even the ones from the photographs. And I'm not the only one. We've had an exhibition but done by uh, a group of people who are writers, Kwani, and still people were weeping, just looking at the, at the pictures. And that's, that's not just pictures. Uh, we have also seen internally displaced people without limbs. And, you know, a lot of bloodshed was going on. So what happened was, the, in the seventh day, I thought, well, I have to break out. And I, I, I want to talk. I need my voice. And I'm getting depressed in here. So I, I thought... Uh, call, I called up a few women. I intended eight to represent the three different, uh, the eight different provinces that we have in Kenya, and I shared with them the idea of let us wear sackcloth. 
For one, okay, many people believe it's only a religious thing because it's mentioned a lot from the Bible, in the Bible. But I really said what I want is to be able to strengthen us so that we, we look like we are a group even if we are not speaking uh, because we were not allowed to move in groups past any street in Nairobi. And only one woman actually wore that cloth with me one day, and we walked down into town, and we started our campaign, which was we didn't even need to call the media. They saw us pass through one of the sensitive spots, and they came right up to us. And the sackcloth spoke volumes to people. Uh, for the first time, people say you pass through the, near the military people, and they were not looking aggressive. They came up to us. They said... You know, Mama is a respectful way of talking to older women here. They said, what is it, Mama? What's going on? And, and I said, what do you mean, what is it? Your people are shooting people all over the country. We want peace. You want peace. You're hungry. And they listened to us, and they said, are you... They asked lots of questions, like about 10 questions, and we weren't harassed, because very often they would just see anything different, and they would chase people away. So we went downtown... And even though it was all creepy and very quiet and all that, people kept on coming up to us and saying, we get, many of them actually didn't ask what it was. They just say, we get your message. You're very upset about this. We want things made right. And in one afternoon, we spoke to about 250 people who went into a park that's called Jevanji Park, and that wasn't guarded. Of course, the military personnel all followed us up there. And I remember looking at the two gates and thinking, my goodness, we are all surrounded in here. It's got a hedge, uh, an ordinary hedge, you know. So I was thinking that any time now if they decide to clobber us, we are done. But they didn't. They sort of took a formation and sat down. And we went on conversing. And for the first time, we were even able to have a meeting of about 60, 50 people. And what were we addressing? Our freedom. We were, I, I carried a book that's about Tom Boyer. Tom Boyer was shot in Nairobi on Tom Boyer Street, it's called, up to today. And he was one of our great leaders. I kept on telling people, look, we are not coming from a vacuum the way it looks like we are. We are coming from a history of having fought for freedom. We cannot give it up on a, on a platter. On a, we, we have to keep on fighting until we can speak. We want our radios back. We want live transmission. We want to know what's going on. The government was arguing that it was insecure to have all the information. We were saying that just three days ago, we had everything normal. We want it back. We were, we were saying, I had a placard that read, I want my country back. And we, and we kept on conversing with various uh, groups, individuals, and the conversation also with media was, look, just three days ago, just 10 days, sorry, then it was about 10 days ago, we had a country. Now, Mr. President, you are giving us back tatters. You are giving us back fire. Please give us back our country. So we encourage people, and I remember we met up with a woman who had walked for miles and had come down from the rural areas, and she said, thank you. Thank you because you are in sackcloth. Because I looked at Nairobi and wondered if people were aware that the country was at a standstill. You see what happened. They tried to keep trouble out of Nairobi completely so that, you know, Nairobi is the capital and if it collapsed, obviously it would mean everything had gone. So, But out there, people were really 
not able to express anything. And this woman came and thanked her. She said, it is not normal. Thank you for being abnormal at this, at this extraordinary moment. So the sackcloth uh, movement began on a very sad note, a lot of mourning. But then we started adding beads to some of the sackcloth. By the way, we actually cut up sacks around <laughs> and put them on in terms of you cut, you cut a full sack. It's a long thing. And it's not the nice, neat, white, like fine sack. It was the rough thing. And then uh, we, we embroidered things on them. Like, uh, I remember mine said, I believe, I hope, and I love Kenya in red. And I went to meetings like that. And I, I put it on and, and I said I would wear it until we were back in, in shape. In, uh, we had peace. And I did. And when I went to one of the meetings, one woman, who is also a rights activist, uh, she's Jerry, she was telling us how she was, she received, she kept on receiving threats, death threats. Many of us who are human rights activists received death threats. We didn't know whether they were from government, from militias, but the point is, if you had your phone on, it would ring, and they would promise you that your head would be on the street the next day. And I remember Jerry saw me in the sack, and she stood up and said, I had given her a lot of strength. She had received even pamphlets with her history and everything, and they had sworn to kill her. And so she, she said, we all have to be like Philo, believe and hope and love Kenya, and we are not running away. And she, she impressed me so much because she had received threats that would make anybody take off from the country, and she actually stayed. We was, she's still here and, and was going from meeting to meeting. And Jerry was a very young girl when the women stripped at the Freedom Corner and she was there. So again, this fire from women had been passed on from woman to woman. True, the men were there and they asked also for sackcloth. We, we started making little jackets. I still have a bag that my friend made that's called Long Road to Freedom, which I gave to a little girl who, who told me about herself. And she's going to come out with a documentary. She was going around this country after peace, in quotes, returned, asking people what could she do to cope with life after what she had seen. And so I was able, she asked me, let me wear this sack that you put on so that I can, I can grow and, you know, I can be strong and carry on. Because really, truly, the things that happen in, what happened in Kenya, and I was about to say the things that happen in Africa, and it's not only Africa. And sometimes you can wonder, just what is this all about? It's just too much. Think about Zimbabwe now, Darfur. You know, every moment you hear possible war in, uh, in, with, uh, in Sudan and then Somalia. And, and, you know, I'm so happy to see that women have creative ways of dealing with these things. I remember listening to women from Somalia who told me that they also reached a stage where they formed the sixth clan because you know women are not even counted as part of the clan and they were not counted as part of the tribes over there so this thing about us wearing sackcloth was such an inspiration from you know it just it just worked even for us and and it has all it has made me into somebody else it gave me strength i thought i was being courageous but actually it gave me more strength and And i know that i haven't stopped that is yes, a powerful, powerful image, very powerful image. Philo, yes. we're going to break one more time. We will be back right after this message. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Philo Ikonia today from Kenya. And Philo, this is our last segment of the show. Um, can you tell us a bit about the next project that you are working on? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a well project. Um, I really believe in uh, bringing water closer to the women and and one and the girls, because they are the ones who usually fetch water. Because believe it or not, 40 years, 44 years into independence, quite close to Nairobi, 15 kilometers, people are still fetching water in the same river where I fetched water as a little girl. Taking clothes down. You can't even believe it, because the rivers are down a hill, really steep. And, and the hill is not covered with grass, because all the grass and the trees, well, you have to rehabilitate everything. So they walk down there and they fetch water on their back. And I want to rehabilitate rivers. But before I can rehabilitate rivers, because I haven't got the science of how that is done, and I would be really proud to do that, we have started asking people to help us get wells done. And one group of people came up and they, they contributed something, because to have a deep well dug, you need at least... Uh, $20,000 and quite a bit of money. So the next project is that. Hopefully in June, I had to hold on to this project because it was supported earlier, but the the political climate as well as all the campaigns would have not helped. So it's going to be done in a school that is attended by children from all over Kenya, and the girls there and the boys are, are, are boarders. And they, are really, they really, really have a poor, poor kind of dormitory situation. The last time I was in there, I was there. The girls also gave me a little note, like shyly, and they wrote me a letter telling me that they're really working hard. They want to carry on and go to university, but that they don't have basic things like sanitary pads. Now, you can't believe... I mean, I, I, I remember my elder sisters telling me it was difficult earlier in, in those years, but... It's going on now because governance must be properly done so that situations like this are not being experienced. There's no excuse that children are not able to find free sanitary pads, young girls in the school. So 
that's one project, the water there in that school, and getting them pads. I haven't managed to do the pads business yet because campaigns are awful. They leave you on your knees if you're not careful, if you don't get good support, and that's where they left me. And then we have the, the project with a friend, actually a girl I met at Santa Clara who was an alumna, Jennifer Volman. She went out of her way. She came to Kenya to see the villages I was talking about because she was so impressed during that learning process. And she and uh, another girl, young girl, they have just finished university called Semi Castanet. They came out and they're helping. We have another project which is a foundation. We called it the Mvule Foundation where we are giving very little funds, like uh, $50, $100, to deserving girls, students in schools, just to get them, you know, out of the rut of occasionally they have to be at home. Okay, some of them miss four days in school because they don't have sanitary pads when they're mm-hmm. day students. But also, occasionally they are sent away from school because of 3,000 shillings, which is about uh, $35, $40, $100. And though we don't want to create the mentality of dependence, we also, because we really want to encourage people to move, but I, we also realize that sometimes, especially when it comes to school, girls are very disadvantaged. So those are, that is the project. It's all around the girls' water. And I'm in just, I'm passionate about the, the wells because I intend that wherever I know a girl who has been defiled, like I, I do know two cases, and in, in, in the two cases, they were not only defiled but also murdered. I would like for there to be a well and a little center where the village can keep some kind of memory because women can meet there and men and discuss what are the problems in their areas. That is the big project that I would love to see spreading through Kenya, not only, not only in the area where I would like to be elected. I might not even run again, I'm afraid, but, um, you know, throughout Kenya, there are areas that are even worse, like Samburu in the drylands. And in yeah. all these places, I have contacts, and we can do that. Those are, that's the project, Cheryl. That's wonderful. Now, I know yeah. you are a writer, and you do poetry, yeah. and you've agreed to read one of your poems. Could you do that now? Yes, it's called The Black Rose of Hope, Kenya 2007-2008. I thought I had seen your rose and held it. It had petals of white. I smelt it. Kenyan fragrance. It mainly had petals of red. I saw them. Beautiful petals of green, too, on black volcanic soil. And this rose rose in my mind like sunrise on the horizon of a beautiful coast, coated orange, your petals of the unique Kenyan rose. Petals of black. Kenya, white for peace green for the land and justice, black for the people, one black people, red for the blood, shed for freedom, the making of Kenya, Kenya. But over each decade, after the red 50s, a story, the 60s, the green withered, its petals wilted and fell to black soil, the rest of the world swung. You joined the twist and strung the 70s, your black petals withered and remained black, you sang with the rest, I'm back and proud. The 80s threw the first bob to show that Kenya's peace on green land must be founded. Kenyatta mocks Moi, Moi mocks Kenya. The 70s must hand over to the 80s with a white trance of peace through the 80s to the 90s. 
we know torture and bloody clashes. Old mothers must strip the enemy to curse. White petals no more. Freedom is red. My rose withers black. White is peace. It is withered black. Call it back. Black voices sing. Sing your souls. Green is black. It has withered black to back to, back to land. My rose, the rose I hold in my hand, is a black, black rose. 2007, Kenya onwards, a black, black rose of buds. This rose blooms black, black hope. This rose blooms white, black peace. This rose blooms green, our land, a black land. This red, red rose blooms black militias. No other race among them, just black. Black militias march with a rose. Will, there, will they rise? Will there rise to be a reform? My black, black rose must bloom again. Bloom all colors of the struggle. Bloom if you want to be in, in all colors for Kenya. That's the end. Oh, beautiful. Thank you, Philo. Beautiful. Welcome. Welcome. It's it's an honor to have you here today. You are courageous and an extraordinary woman doing the work of your country, and for humankind. You are a very special person on this planet. If people want to reach Philo Ikonia and ask her questions, please send an email to me at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. I will make sure that Philo receives the email and she can respond to you. Philo, Thank you again for being with us. You are a magnificent person. Um, Your story needs to be told around the world. I look forward to the next time that we connect. Thank Thank you you very much. I'm I'm very touched. And uh, thank you very much to the listeners and to your office. I'm in the studio and all those who are on duty. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Philo. Remember, it's not my everyone. Story. It's the story of women. Yes. <laughs> it is the story of women, is it not? Yes, it absolutely yes, is. Yes. Women around yes. the world making a difference, taking a leadership stand. Yes, absolutely. And that's what this show is about individuals making a difference, being leaders in their own right. And once more today, we've had another leading conversation. Remember, everyone, to think big. Because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Escobedo. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week.